we'll be turning to the Old Testament book of Psalms first, Psalm 24. If you're reading in your pew Bible in the King James Bible, that would be 473 in the New King James, page 852. Here's the word of God. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Lift up your your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Now if you turn to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians in the 10th chapter, if you're reading in the King James Version, 153, in the New King James, 1,764. We begin reading at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat, asking no question for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and you be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I, by grace, be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of? For that for which I give thanks. Whether thereof, sorry, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. 
Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even as one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Beloved congregation of the Lord, would you turn with me again to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in the first verse. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Well, we are nearing the end of another calendar year, and so for many it is a period of reflection. Surely it's always appropriate to reflect about where we stand. But particularly at the end of the year, it is important. Surely there are many businesses that are looking at their bottom line and seeing their revenues, seeing their costs, and ask themselves, how are they doing? Surely many uh, people, even in their personal lives, will do a bit of an inventory about where the last year has brought them. Maybe they'll Consider, where am I at with my health? What changes could I make there to make things better? Maybe they're doing an inventory on their relationship with their spouse and asking, how am I doing? How can I enhance this relationship? And surely the church should not be exempt from that. Surely also the church of Christ should be asking herself constantly, where am I at? Where we would assess our own church family, there's all sorts of metrics we might use. Maybe we might look back on the past year, and if there were a hundred other people sitting in these pews, we would look back and say, well, that was a very profitable year. But where God would look at his church, it is not so much numbers that he cares about. What he desires for his church is the likeness of his 
Son. God desires that his church would manifest that character which he saw uh, in our mediator and Savior and Lord. Jesus Christ is to be shown in his character, in his person, in his work. They are to radiate out in the lives of his people. And so it is that what is held forth before us in this text is a wonderful metric whereby we may do an inventory of where we are as individual Christians, as families, as a church family. Where we stand according to this measure. Are we followers of Christ? Are we followers of Christ? With that, I'm going to bring three uh, points to your attention this evening. First, what? Second, how? Third, why? Followers of Christ. First, the what. What are we talking about where we speak of following Christ? Well, the text here refers especially to imitation. There is a pattern that you would look upon and you would desire to match it, to conform to it. Here is the standard that you aspire to, Christian the likeness of Jesus Christ. And here is your business to follow after him, to be imitators of Jesus Christ. This was, of course, something that we see repeated time and again in the life and ministry of Christ. There's a dramatic change that takes over where a person becomes a follower of Christ. He goes to a Matthew, a tax collector, a dirty dealer, a corrupt uh, collaborator with the Roman occupation. He goes up to this Matthew and says, follow me. He leaves his tax collector booth and follows after Jesus. He goes to these fishermen, Peter and James and John, and says, follow me. They leave their nets and their boats and they follow after Jesus. We see that, don't we? This denotes a change. It denotes something that takes place in the heart of every believer. To be a true Christian is not to just go with the crowd. To be a true Christian is not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed, that we would be like Jesus. And is it not such a glorious thing, Christian, where you would hear such things and they would fill you with a sense of sorrow and how you do not measure up to that standard and how you fall short of the pattern of perfection, love, and glory you see in Christ. And God is not done with you. God has not come here with his measuring stick and say, well, you do not measure up, and so I am done with you. I will have no more of my imperfect, unchristlike people. It was not so with this church at Corinth. 
The church at Corinth, you know, as, as we've been studying it also this past fall in particular in connection with our series on the Lord's Supper, had no shortage of problems. False teachers promoting heresy. Examples of sexual immorality that were not being dealt with by the elders. Improper conduct in relation to the Lord's Supper. Improper conduct in relation to worship and order and authority. Improper doctrines concerning even the heart of the gospel, the resurrection of the dead. And lovelessness. Oh, how much lovelessness do we see in this epistle to the church at Corinth. This one of Paul. This one of Apollos. This one of Cephas. Dividing from one another. Division and strife. And so it's almost like there's a great big dumpster fire. Burning there. And you would say, well, is there anything good in this church at all? And yet here is Christ contending with his church through the servant of Christ, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul speaks with the heart and the mind of the king of the church here as his minister. He says, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. The burden of Christ and every minister of Christ who is a true minister is that the church of Christ would be ordained Adorned with the holiness of our master. Not that we look at the church and say, well, it isn't perfect. It doesn't measure up to what we desire. I often tell people if there were a perfect church, then it wouldn't be perfect the moment I were to join it. We don't have that standard with ourselves. We, we, we delight where we understand the patience and the mercy of God toward ourselves. And yet sometimes we withhold it from our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Not so with the apostle Paul here. He loves them enough to correct them. He loves them enough to rebuke them. He loves them enough to point them back to that true north of their compass, to point them back to the true heart's desire of every true Christian. Despite all the problems, he says, be followers of me, even as I am of Christ. And it's something that he often is prone to saying. He says the same thing in Philippians chapter 3 to a completely different church. Philippians 3, verse 17, brethren, be followers together of me and mark them that walk so as ye have us uh, for an example. In the church of Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, he commends that church of Thessalonica and says, And ye became followers of us, that is, he and his fellow co-laborers of the gospel. Ye became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. And perhaps you say, what an egomaniac this Paul is. What a prideful man, where he would hold himself as an example. Be a follower of me, even as I am of Christ. What kind of minister would talk in that way? Well, surely you understand this does not come from a place of pride. Anyone who is 
claiming to be a minister who can't say that to their church is no right to be a minister. Anyone who would desire to be an office bearer in the church cannot, uh, cannot even claim that office, except they are willing to say the same. It is this, be followers of me, even as I am of Christ. If you are not a follower of Christ, and that is being shown in your life, you have no right to lead others. If you're not going to lead people to a greater conformity of Christ, you have no right to be in a position of authority and leadership. Paul, he understood how God had been gracious unto him. He was not what he once was. Who was he once? He was the persecutor of the church. He was one who hated the bride of Christ, who was even responsible for the murder of Stephen, holding the coats for those who stoned him to death. There were surely other Christians whom he had led away to their execution. And so he says later on in the same epistle, in the 15th chapter, uh, verse 8, Speaking of the risen Christ, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of a due time, for I am the least of the apostles, but I'm not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Not I, but the grace of God in me. I am what I am, but by the grace of God. Paul is not speaking from pride here. He's not delusional, holding himself as an authority? No. Every Christian who has been changed by the grace of Christ should be able to say the same thing. They are not what they should be, but by the grace of God, they are not what they once were. And so it was that he contends for the purity of others. He writes earlier on in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, In verse 14, to this church I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons I warn you. For though you have ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me." How valuable that is to have not only a teacher, but one who loves you even as a father. That is the true heart of a shepherd. One who doesn't just tell you a bunch of rules and then takes that rule book and uses it to slam you when you fall down. It's not someone that you're afraid of. How can I I bring my problems to this man? He's just going to think the worst of me. No. Every loving father knows this. They love their son so much that there is no problem, no difficulty, no challenge that if it were, not, if it were brought to 
the father, he would seek the good of that son, no matter how hard the lesson that may have to be given. You can tell this, can't you? When you speak to a fellow Christian who really loves you, who really cares for you, you know that they will give you the straight goods. They will tell you things that you don't want to know, maybe even things that will harm your pride, cut you down to size, and yet they come from a place of love. If they did not love you, they would not so try to speak unto you. The apostle writes in Hebrews 6, verse 12, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Everyone needs that, don't they? They need counselors who will come alongside them and say, you're in danger of being too lazy. You're being too careless. You're letting things slip. You're not being Christ-like. You're not following the pattern of Christ as you see it in the scriptures, as you see it in me, as you see it in your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Be followers of me, even as I am of Christ. If someone were to speak to you about things in your life and say, this must change. This must change because it is displeasing to Christ. What is your initial response? Is it to get your back up and say, how dare you? Or is it immediately that receptivity, that, that softening of the heart and saying, could it be so? Show me from the word of God where I must make amends. That is the heart of the Christian. That is the heart of the true church of Jesus Christ. How can we be conformed unto Christ? This is where we come to this verse with, I trust. But if it is not so with you, let me ask you that. Is it true? Is it true that you are at a point where you would not receive correction? Is it true that if someone were to point to you your sins that you treasure and are enslaved to, you would bristle and attack them in return. Let me tell you this. It is a very dangerous place that you are in. We see here the what, the what. But now we see something of the how. How is it that this can be put into practice? How is it that we may discern in ourselves that we be followers of Christ who desire to be followers of Christ. Well, let's take a step back and look at this verse. What is the ultimate standard here? It is Jesus. The Christian religion without Jesus is nothing. It is a farce. It is a stench in the nostrils of God. A Christless Christianity that knows not the true and living Christ is not worthy to be spoken of as the genuine article. It is worthless. And yet, here we have Christ as the one we are to follow. Jesus spoke in this way, didn't he? Matthew 16, verse 24, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. 
For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Here is the point. This is not just for super Christians, not just for a special elite of Christians. It's not like this is the class A of Christianity and there's some lower class that you can subscribe to. No, this is the only true Christianity there is. If you will not be conformed unto Christ, then indeed there's nothing left for you but that you give up your soul and be surrendered unto the eternal condemnation of the damned. If you will not take up your cross and follow after Christ in conformity unto him, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. Christ is a package deal. Would you have him to be your priest to atone for your sins? You must have him to be your king to rule over your heart. Would you have him to be your savior? You must have him to be your Lord. That faith which rests in the perfect righteousness of Christ is not, is not a faith that is dead, but alive. The same faith that receives and rests in Christ also bears fruit. You will know them by their fruit, says Jesus. And a Christian who's not bearing fruit is... No Christian at all. There it is. But not only, not only follow Christ, but be followers of me, as I also am of Christ. And here we see that there is nothing of implicit faith here. What is implicit faith? Well, this would be one of the doctrines taught by the Roman Catholic Church. What is faith in the Roman Catholic system? It is that whatever the priest tells you, that is right. Whatever the priest says, that is the will of God. Whatever the Pope and all the followers of the Pope in the uh, formal ecclesiastical structures of the Church of Rome speak. They speak with the voice of Christ. And you must not resist. You must not question. You have only to submit. And so one year the Pope says that same-sex unions are not to be blessed. This year the Pope says, yes, we can bless same-sex unions. And you were wrong to to, uh, believe otherwise then, and you're wrong to believe something different now. And so it is the Roman Catholic Church teaches you to surrender your brain at the door and to simply yield to whatever you are told. But this is not the teaching of the Bible. This is not what the Apostle Paul taught. He said, be followers of me as I am of Christ. You examine me and my words and my actions by the standard of Christ. Immediately we see that a true Christian must be a thinking Christian, a discerning Christian, one that uses the wisdom of the scriptures to test all things, to examine all things, to prove all things. That is the essence of the text here. And as we unfold that, let me ask some questions about this, some questions for us to consider. First is this, what has changed? What has changed in your own life? If this is what it means to be conformed unto Christ, 
to be conformed to all that you are taught by example and precept through the ministry of the word to be more like Christ, then what has changed? What has changed? Here we come at the end of the year. It's an opportunity for a reflection, for self-examination. What has changed in your life in this way? You know, sometimes it's very discouraging. I go out into the street and maybe I'll, I'll ask them, well, are you a Christian? And they'll say, well, yes, I'm a Christian. How long have you been a Christian? I've been a Christian all my life. Well, you know, we don't dismiss that immediately. After all, someone like John the Baptist, of all people, could say, even from his youth, from even being in his mother, he was born again by the Spirit of God, as we saw this morning. There are cases of that. We don't dismiss it offhand. But where you hear that enough times, you begin to really wonder if there's been really no change in your whole life that you can remember. If you can just say, yeah, I've always been a Christian, always been a follower of the Lord. Never come under some unique sense of conviction of sin that once I did not have. Never once had something of the sight of the glory of Christ that I do not remember having before. Never once feeling that there is some difference, some alteration in my life priorities. And the question becomes, is it true? Is it genuine? Is there just a self-delusion taking place? Listen to what the Apostle John says in that little book of 3 John, in the 11th chapter of that little book. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, and he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Is that a little bit too much black and white for you? Well, it's the word of God, so you're going to have to deal with it. There are these two options. You're going to follow evil, or you're going to follow good. You're going to follow the precepts of God in Christ, or you are going to follow the ways of the world. You are going to be a child of God, or you're going to be a child of the devil. There's a fundamental difference, a categorical difference, an important difference. We can't water over and ignore. There are people who are followers of Christ and there are people who are not. Is it just left to their own uh, imaginations? Is it left to their own whims, whether they are follower of Christ or no? Or are there ways that we can tell? Is there a way that we can tell that you today are a follower of Christ? What is it that Jesus himself said? Matthew 5, verse 19, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. We know, of course, don't we, that the Lord Jesus had much controversy with the scribes and Pharisees, but mark this, Christian, it was not that they kept too strictly to the law. It wasn't. that Jesus came to say, you don't have to obey the law anymore. It wasn't that you can ignore the precepts of God and live however you please. He says your righteousness should exceed theirs, not fall short of theirs. Not that you should be less careful 
for the glory of God and the precepts of his commandments, but more careful where they would obey only on the surface, you are to obey sincerely from the heart. Where they would obey selectively, you are to obey uh, completely. The righteousness of the Christian is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Really good thing to ask in this in the context of this question, what has changed? What's changed also in this? Have you come to understand the word of God better? Surely I couldn't say that in the past year I came into 2023 with a perfect understanding of the word of God. The word of God is living. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts through the heart and the thoughts and the soul and the spirit. It pierces, it convicts, it wounds. Has there really been nothing in the word of God that has shown that something was amiss in your life? As you have studied the word of God, Christian, I trust that you have studied the word of God. Has there really been nothing, nothing that has led you to change things in your life, to be more in conformity to the will of your master? Didn't it just say there, you should not diminish from the word, you shall not add to the word, you shall keep the word? The word doesn't change. Could it be that every Christian just has it all automatically figured out the moment they become a Christian? No, you must grow in the knowledge of Christ. You must grow in the knowledge of the law. So it should be that you should be growing in your convictions. Whereas before you had a fuzzy understanding of what God requires of you, now you should have a more clear understanding. Whereas before you saw some things as tolerable, maybe your conscience is now instructed that these things cannot be. And you should still be a follower of Christ. If we can look back in the last year and say, there have not been adjustments so that we are made closer to Christ then the fearful reality may be that either we are not true Christians or we are badly backsliding. We are sliding backward where Christ would have us go forward. We are compromising with the world where Christ would say, give no quarter to the world. Give yourself utterly unto me. Maybe you'd say, well, wasn't it that earlier in that scripture reading Where Paul said in chapter 10 and verse 23, all things are lawful for me. Well, yes, he did say that. Not that every single thing was lawful. Not that everything was lawful. Obviously, you read this uh, book of 1 Corinthians, he's very clear that certain things are not lawful. And even in the same chapter, he talks about how idolatry is not lawful and so forth. But within even the framework of the Christian life, where you understand that within certain boundaries you have liberty, even there he'd be asked the more refined question, how do you use your liberty? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are not profitable. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify 
not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's. It says another's wealth, but you could also, uh, in our translation, but that's really supplied. The word wealth is in italics in the King James because really there's no word there, but you could supply another's good or another's profit. And so it is, he goes through this different scenario. Basically, you have the case of, well, should we uh, eat food that's been offered to an idol? And what is it that he says? Well, it all depends on whether this will tend toward another's edification, whether it will bring them closer to the Lord or further away. Someone comes to you and they're an unbeliever. You have an opportunity to reach out to them and and they don't tell you that this has been offered to an idol. Well, don't like raise the question. Just go and eat what's in front of you. He, he cites Psalm 24, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Just eat what's in front of you. Don't ask a question. And then you know, take the other case. Someone comes to you and says, well, this was definitely offered to an idol. And then the question becomes, you just go ahead and eat that idol? After all, there are people who are actually engaged in idolatry. People are going to see that. Know that, that you ate that food um, knowing it was an idol. Maybe they'll think, well, maybe idolatry is okay after all. And, and in that way, you will lead them to a damnable sin. And so in that case, he, he cites the very same passage. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And he says, don't, don't eat that if it's going to cause someone else to stumble, someone else to sin. You see how, how carefully the apostle thinks here. He is, he is focused upon this, focused upon what will tend towards the good and salvation of others. So it is. Where we would ask the question, what has changed? What has changed? Is this, has this changed for you? Are you crept by a love and a care for others? Do you desire not only your own holiness? that of your wife or husband, that of your children, that of your family, that of your community, that of your nation? Do you desire to factor this question to all uh, of your actions? What edifies? What brings people closer to the Lord? That's the true conscience that's been instructed by the word of God. That is the conscience that's showing forth the following of Jesus Christ. You don't think just about yourself. You think about this. How does everything tend towards the glory of God and my neighbor's good? That was how Jesus lived, wasn't it? He said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He said, I came not to be served, but to serve, to give my life a ransom for many. That's what it means to follow Christ, brothers and sisters. There's no other Christ to follow but one who serves the will of God and the good of others. And where we are still bent upon serving our own appetites, lusts, and desires, if we are content with a bare minimalism of checking the boxes and saying, well, I've done just enough in order to pass an examination from a consistory, then I would say we don't know true biblical Christianity. We don't know the true Christ, if that is all that matters. Let me ask this question as well. Do you have enemies? Do you have enemies? Maybe an interesting question to ask. After all, in that same text, didn't it say... Um, 
In chapter 10 and verse 32, give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Well, that pretty much covers everyone, doesn't it, in that day? Not the Christians, the church of God, nor to the Jews who reject the Messiah, nor to the Gentiles who are given to all sorts of immorality. And so maybe the argument would be, well, surely a Christian can never have enemies because your primary focus is that everyone just loves you all the time. Everyone is just pleased with you and no one has any problem with you whatsoever. How could a Christian have enemies? If, after all, they to please uh, everyone and by giving none offense. Well, let me tell you that Paul, who even says in the next verse, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved, we can just ask the question, how was it that Paul pleased all men? How was it that he pleased all Jews? The same Jews that tried to kill him? because he wouldn't shut up about Jesus. The same Gentiles who threw him into prison and ultimately beheaded him. The same church of God that was constantly attacking him and resisting him, accusing him of of all sorts of of lies and, and slander. Well, indeed, Paul in his own day would have seen as a troublemaker, as a disturber of the peace, And yet he can say that I please all men. I give none offense to Jew or Gentile or to the church of God. Well, that is because it all comes down to this. What is it really to give offense? What is it to give offense? Is the standard of whether you've offended someone that their emotions are bothered because you are too closely following the will of the Lord? Is that what it means? Listen to what Matthew Poole says about that verse, the Puritan expositor. We used to say that men are offended when they are grieved or angered, but these offenses are not here meant, but give no occasion of sin or stumbling. That's the better translation of offense, stumbling, stumbling into sin. He goes on, this care he commands us with reference to all men, For at that time, the world fell under one of these three denominations. They were either Jews or Gentiles, that is, heathens, or the church of God, that is, Christians. It was always a hard matter, if not a thing impossible, for Christians to carry themselves so as not to anger those that were no Christians. But it was not impossible for them so to behave themselves as not to be to them any just occasion of sin. Much less ought conscientious Christians to give offense to Christians that made up the church of God and were with the members of the same mystical body of which Christ is the head. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ and the godly apostle Paul? It is this, that you give none offense in this sense. You are not the occasion of another stumbling into sin. Indeed, there may be occasions where despite your love for others, your love even for your enemies, Christian, you may ignite in them such a fiery hatred of you that is not even to be imagined. Jesus spoke in this way, 
Luke chapter 6, verse 26. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. What is the mark of the false prophet? No one can think of a single criticism to make of them. Why? Because they've accommodated themselves to the sins of their age. They've coasted through Never once challenging, never once rebuking, never once bearing the cross. They give smooth words because they know not how to contend for the honor of Christ. They have no one who will speak even a criticism of them because they are not a disturber of the devil or of the devil's children. That is not to be the one who follows Christ. John 15, verse 19, the Lord Jesus says, If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. Indeed, where someone is zealous for the cause of Christ, there will be a tension, there will be a resistance, there will be an opposition To the measure that you are serving Christ, you should expect pushback. You should expect resistance and hostility. We know, of course, there is such a thing as giving needless offense through our own sin, through our own um, failure to conform ourselves to the pattern of Christ, who spoke the truth in love. But there is also such a thing as falling short of the following of Christ because we are too hesitant to truly resist the world rather than being conformed to it. Do you have enemies? Do you have enemies? There's the last question under this point of the how. What do you want? What do you want more than anything? We've been talking about these things. We're talking about the glory of God, the good of others, and the cost associated with that, even bearing under persecution and hostility from others. What is it that you want? Do you want an easy life? Do you want to just coast through? What is it that Paul wanted? Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. Another very troubled church in Galatia. My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. This was his heart's desire that Christ be formed in them, that Christ would be all to his people, that there would be a loosening of the power of sin as we come more and more under the sway of Christ and his grace and love. Listen to what Matthew Henry says here. Everything lawful in itself to be done is not therefore lawfully done. That is, something can be Lawful for others, but not for you. He goes on, circumstances may make that a sin which in itself is none. There must be, these must be weighed. And the expediency of an action and its tendency to edification must be considered before it be done. Note, 
the welfare of others as well as our own convenience must be consulted. And in many things we do if we would do them well. Our own preferences and appetite must not determine our practice, but the honor of God and the good and edification of the church. We should not so much consult our own pleasure and interests as the advancement of the kingdom of God among men. And so it is that the same apostle writes in Romans 15, verses 2 and 3, Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification, for every, sorry, for even Christ please not himself. That, but as it is written, the reproachers of them that reproach thee fell on me. What do you want? On one level, I believe I can say to everyone here who is a genuine, born-again Christian, do what you truly desire. Do as you desire. What is it that you desire in the fundamental part of you, Christian? It is not just to coast through life. It is this, to truly be like Christ. That is what you want. And that part of you which does not desire it, that part which is content with anything less, that is not genuinely who Christ would have you to be. It is not truly yourself. That is of the flesh. You are of the spirit. That is the old man. Put on the new. Be who you are in Christ Jesus. Strive for that which your heart truly desires. Conformity to Christ. Thus far, we've seen here not only the what, but also the how. Let me just briefly speak of the why. The why. Because even as we speak of these things, surely among any one of us, there are any number of oppositions and objections that may be raised in our minds. And I would put to you that God is able to silence all of them with these two answers of the why. Why? Why press on, Christian, even where you feel yourself in your weakness of your unbelief, of your deadness so often? Even as you feel your shortcomings piling up, you look back on this past year and say you have fallen short of the glory of God. Why press on? Why endure? Why fight the good fight of faith? Simply this, it is the will of God. The will of God for you. That is enough. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. Furthermore, when we bes- we, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye should abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. What is the chief end of God, Christian? It is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of God is not that he suit your own preferences, not that God should come down from his throne and you should be the measure of all things, but know that you bow down to the dust and you submit to his will. His will is your sanctification, that you be holy. That you have his laws written upon your hearts. That you be those who show forth the glorious radiance of Christ's 
character unto a dead and dying world. It is the will of God. And where God has spoken, it must be. He spoke in the beginning. Let there be light, and there was light. He speaks now and speaks. Let the light of Christ shine forth in you. Let your light so shine before men. Where the will of God has been spoken, let us fall silent and say, Truth, Lord, be it according to your word. Second, it is worth every cost, every cost. That is ultimately the lie of the devil, isn't it? This cost is just too high. Jesus says, what profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? The devil says, well, the world certainly has a lot to offer, doesn't it? Pleasure for a season, comfort, and ease your own sinful lush. Give in. Sleep as the world does. Fade as the world does. Make your home here in this passing evil age. So was it with one of those who sought the Lord Jesus? You know, that rich young ruler, he came and knelt before Jesus' feet. Lord, what must I do that I may have eternal life? Jesus, looking at him, said, why do you call me good? There is none good but one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and Your mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these I have observed from my youth. And Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, come, take up the cross, and what follow me. What was it the rich young ruler did? At the hearing of the word of Christ, did he embrace the terms of Christ? Did he repent? Did he believe? Did he follow? No. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Whatever the Lord would have you to part with, my dear friend, it is not worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits those who follow Christ. If today you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Do not count the passing pleasures of sin to be where you can find true happiness. Part with them now. Surrender it all before the Lord. Plead upon his shed blood. Embrace him in his offers of grace and truth. Know that all those who commit to following him will not so be put to shame. Amen.